Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Tom Holtz, and this is the second broadcast of the American Society for Public Administration, South Florida Chapter, Public Sector Works podcast. We hope you've all been well uh, from the preceding month, and we hope you all listened to our first podcast last month with Dr. Alan Rosenbaum talking about Schedule F. And I'm briefly going to state, by the way, that uh, since that last podcast, which talked about a uh, an anticipated practice in the uh, in federal public sector, which would have severely curtailed um, appointments, uh, policymaking decision appointments. And of course, rather than get into all that, please, please go to that podcast and listen if you haven't already. But the good news is, is that yesterday, actually the 20, actually on the 22nd, I should say, uh, President Biden rescinded that order, which is great news. And now the, my understanding is, is that the federal management and the unions uh, are trying to come to grips with implementation of that order to undo uh, the apparent, uh, any apparent uh, damage that was done as a result of that original order. So that is a work in progress, but uh, I'm, we're all very pleased, I'm sure, uh, that this war, that this uh, practice has been reversed. And speaking of practices, this uh, this podcast will be devoted to administrative and research uh, practices, with administrative practices uh, primarily in academe. And we're very pleased to have with us Dr. Agatha Carabayo. Uh, Dr. Agatha Carabayo is with FIU, Florida International University, and uh, she is. She's going to she's going to tell you exactly who and what and, and who and what she is, but it's who she is, and uh, she is the number two person in the public administration program. There, Agatha, how are you today? Good evening. Uh, really excited to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, well, and kudos to the chapter for launching the podcast. Well, thank you very much, and we're very glad to have you here. Uh, we're extremely glad to have you because um, public sector and best practices in public sector is, is certainly an interest of mine. Uh, I, I want to start out by going over uh, your background, as it were, uh, and you've been in the business for over 15 years, which is, which is quite impressive. Why don't you test, uh, why don't you tell us, um, who you are and how you started out and, uh, we'll talk from there. Sure. Um, well, um, as you mentioned, um, my name is Dr. Agatha Catabayo. I am the associate teaching professor and assistant chair of the Department of Public Policy and Administration in the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs at Florida International University. Um, I am also a proud um, Panther alumna. I earned my PhD in public affairs um, and my Bachelor of Science in Communication also from FIU. Um, moved to Florida, I've been here about 22 years now, I realized this year, um, wow. but originally from Northern California. Um, but Florida is definitely now home. Oh, where in California did you come from? I was raised in Northern California in Santa Rosa, up in oh, Sonoma yes. County. Okay. Okay. That's great. Okay. And yeah. I've been at FIU now uh, as a faculty member for 10 years. Um, and besides my teaching administrative role in the department, I also received a leadership studies certificate. That's great. When you started out in uh, in academe, you know, and like all of us, you, you know, you were a student back then. We're all lifelong students. Here I am going for my uh, DBA at North Central University, and uh, after thirty years myself in public service. So uh, my God, who, who you know, who knew? But uh, you were, but you know, but as a student, how did you how did you get interested in this, and how did you transition over into uh, your first job? Well, I have to give a lot of credit to um, one of my mentors, Dr. Meredith Newman, who's um, a past Aspen National President and, and uh, chair of, past chair also of the Section for Women in Public Administration. She was the department chair um, while I was a doctoral student in the program. 
and asked me to teach my first course as a graduate student. Um, so I, I taught an introduction to public administration course. That was uh, my first in-person class. And coincidentally, it would be about another 10 years before I would do another <laughs> in-person class. But then I quickly went into the online domain um, and taught predominantly online classes for almost 10 years. Um, I was hired as part of a cohort of fully online professors called digital instructors back then, um, in the sense that we were going to teach fully online courses back then. It was Blackboard was the learning management system, and now we're on Canvas. Um, but it was a great learning opportunity for me. I really embraced the online um, distance learning, and I was really fortunate to be able to help launch um, the undergraduate um, degree program in our department, our online bachelor of public administration degree. That's wonderful. Uh, my understanding, though, is uh, before you got into that, and uh, you were in you were in financial aid for a little while. Yes, my was- my introduction in academia back when I was pursuing my associate's degree um, back at Santa Rosa Junior College in Santa Rosa. I was a federal work study student, so hmm. I started working in the financial aid offices, um, kind of you know, administrative assistant, student worker, but. When I moved here to California, um, after my daughter was born, I started working at Miami International University of Art and Design, which mm-hmm. is part of the Art Institute um, group of schools, and was a financial aid officer um, there for about a year and a half and then transitioned to career services. That's very interesting. Um, can you recall, I'm going to ask you for, and I hope I'm not throwing you a curveball, but I'm going to ask you for, to, to go back into your memory, what was one significant challenge that you might remember when you were in financial aid and how you, ha- and how you were able to handle that? I think the biggest thing is that dealing with emotions. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, when Issues of financial aid, especially for students that rely significantly on that type of aid, Um, it not being processed in time, um, if there are complications, delays, um, it could be, you know, devastating Um, in some cases. It would cause students to withdraw from school and other impacts. I think a lot of it was dealing with um, very irate, in some cases justifiably so, um, upset students and trying to help find solutions. Were were these the fault of the, um, well, it's hard to, it, it, I don't want to start to pinpoint blame. I would imagine, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that usually such instances are systems failures, uh, that the Fed, that either the feds, if you're talking about federal aid, they didn't come through with the particular aid on time, uh, or there could be academic glitches in the, in terms of the paperwork and so forth. And, uh, it's really all of the above. It's sometimes, student error and sometimes it's um you know inner office error sometimes it's you know um above us within the federal government um there's all kinds of different things that can go wrong um i, I think really is you have to just learn how to deal with it sometimes fix it where you can um but i think a big part of it is dealing with expectations and helping to Convince people um, and show them that you're trying to help them find a solution, even if it's not what they're expecting or hoping for at that particular time. Mm-hmm. So we, we essentially, we're talking about Murphy's Law, my favorite law. If anything can go wrong, it will. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and and it's very important to see. Was the college you worked at in Santa Rosa, was that public or was that nonprofit? It was a public. It was a, um, a state, you know, two-year university, uh, two-year college. Good. So uh, we're dealing with um, uh, uh, we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with a particular uh, we're dealing with a particular situation where you handled that very well. And we are back. We are back. And uh, let me explain to the viewers uh, that we had to we had to pause very briefly because we got we had a couple of guests that decided to crash this party, and one of them is uh, Isidoro Lopez. The hey, thank you. Yes, yes. You guys will remember uh, Council uh, Attorney Lopez as the uh, as a co-host of our. Uh, of our podcast last month, and he is the Correct. 
president of the board of directors of ASPA South, uh, South Florida. Uh, so Izzy is here to say hi, and he has got, he's juggling a million balls. Izzy, say hi. Hello, everyone out there. Thank you once again for tuning in. You guys are in for a great treat. Uh, I see one of my mentors here, Dr. Patterson, that I uh, had the experience of being mentored by about 13 years ago. She's a juggernaut in this industry. And my colleague, my friend, one of the best voices in the public administration world, Agatha Caraballo, you all are in for a great treat. And I encourage you all to tune in next month as we expand on some of the uh, guests we're having. Uh, Izzy, as usual, is stealing my thunder, but that is that's quite all right. And uh, no, uh, no, I'm I'm kidding, actually. But yes, uh, the other uh, the other professor who crashed the party is Dr. Valerie Patterson, uh, who is also with Florida International University, and Dr. Patterson will be our interviewee next month when we go into Black History Month. And uh, say hello, Dr. Patterson. Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, good evening. And thanks so much, Tom, for the, the introduction. And I'm really looking forward to uh, us getting together next month. It's excellent. We encourage that. Dr. Patterson is going to talk to, uh, is going to speak to other things relative. It's a very, very special occasion, uh, especially now that we have a vice president uh, who is the first multiracial female uh, person who has ever held that office. So that should be of interest. Dr. Patterson, thank you so much for stopping by. You're always welcome. Thank, thanks so much for having me. I'm sorry for the interruption. I'm really looking forward to hearing from my dear colleague, Dr. Agatha Caraballo. It, oh, and, and before you go, Dr. Caraballo apparently was is a fan of Dr. Patterson. And in fact, uh, uh, Valerie, why don't, I mean, I get, uh, Dr. Caraballo, why don't you describe your uh, relationship there? I am. I am a huge fan of Dr. Patterson. I joined the legions and legions of FIU alums. Um, I was so fortunate to have her as a professor when I was pursuing um, my PhD in public affairs at FIU. And really, as joining upon joining the faculty, just somebody who really took me under her wing, um, served as an amazing mentor, showed me all the ropes of the administration in the department, um, but really helped. Um, blaze a trail and I do call her that my trailblazer because she showed me that it was possible to blaze this trap um, that's fine trail that, in academia that's fine so uh, so thank you once again Dr. Patterson and no it was not a bother you're welcome anytime you <laughs> great keep, great thanks see you guys thank see you, you soon. Bye. keep Take me care. on my toes take care doctor be well be well okay uh, okay, so we are back to uh, Dr. Caraballo. And uh, so we were talking about your experience in financial aid, and that is certainly indicative of a best practice. Um, you then went on to support services, as I recall. You were an advisor. And was that with FIU or was that in California also? Um well, first it was um, over here as well in, in Miami. Um, after leaving financial aid, I moved to career services and was doing that and then decided to go back to school. Um, I left my job to you know, become a full-time student pursuing my, my PhD at FIU. Um, and it was in my final year in 2012, um, I was pregnant with my son. Uh, who's now eight years old, and when the department was hiring um, FIU for a career services coordinator, a career development coordinator, mm -hmm. which was essentially the same exact job that I was doing before I went to get my PhD, but for less money. Um, <laughs> but I applied, um, and they hired me six months pregnant. Um, wow. And I was actually very fortunate. I have to give credit to Dr. Mohammed Al-Qadri, who was my former colleague and supervisor, who then allowed me to work from home for three months so that I could have a maternity leave. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, you know, he definitely is somebody who walks, walk, talk. Um, but I did that for a year. Um, and despite now having my degree and taking a significant pay cut, um, I knew that FIU is where I wanted to be. And um, I continued to adjunct, you know, while 
doing that position until the digital instructor position became available, um, which was a full-time faculty position, non-tenure, which um, I then applied for. Well, you certainly had your hands full, and uh, uh, it's good to know that FIU uh, abided by the federal laws uh, regarding uh, the hiring of, uh, of pregnant workers and uh, gave you, uh, essentially provided a wonderful accommodation to you so that you mm-hmm. can continue to work at home uh, while this was going on. It did sound like the perfect, uh, the perfect arrangement. And so I'm, and so I'm going to ask you, um, you know, the, in terms of best practices in, in advisement, uh, and then we're going to go to your academic, uh, but in terms of best practices, and, and which is, by the way, apparently it's a para-academic kind of thing because uh, you're dealing with students, you're dealing with professors, uh, you're dealing with the deans of the respective departments uh, in funneling the complaint and pulling any issues back and forth between all of them. You may also be dealing with the financial issues uh, where in terms of trying to explain to the students what they're paying for. Um, what, what were one or two challenges that you found in advisement and how did you handle that? I think the biggest challenge is just expectations sometimes. Um, and I think, you know, making sure that there's clear communication, um, (laughs) before, during, and after (laughs) in a lot of cases, um, I'm finding this now because of COVID-19 and, of course, this was so disruptive to our lives. um, My motto last year was that we all kind of deserve grace, you know. Um, But at the same time, um, working within reasonable expectations for students and being able to still provide clear guidelines and minimum standards. Uh, So I know in some cases I was lenient in some cases with accepting late work. Uh, given circumstances, but had to draw some lines in the sand um, to be fair to all students. This is as an adjunct then? Is that what you were talking about? This or is, is this as, as most recently advisor. as this past couple of semesters. Uh, as an advisor, uh, one of the biggest things with advisors is um, making sure that students um, know the guidelines, the expectations, where to find resources, directing them to the website, but then also having a certain amount of consistency among messaging. So um, what they're hearing from their professors, from their academic advisors, from the website to make sure that it's all consistent. They're not getting mixed messages. What was your case? What was your caseload as an advisor? Uh, I've heard 250 advisors have 200, up to 150 students where I am. Uh, well, I don't do academic advising per se. Uh, right now, our academic advisors probably have a workload of around two, three hundred. And when I was wow. um, working with students, financial aid, yeah, I'd probably have a similar workload. Um, when it came to career development advising, uh, really, one thing is that within our master's program, students that didn't have experience are classified as pre-service, so they are expected to do an internship. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did find that a lot of our students already have experience. Um, so it's more just kind of guiding them to new opportunities. Excellent. And uh, you were, and you, how long did you work in advisement? Oh, let's see. Um, before and after my PhD, I probably did three years as a career development uh, advisor coordinator. But you, but you found there was a clear pathway at FIU between advising and, of course, you were also adjuncting at the same time you were advising. Was that it? Um, oh, well, when I first started at FIU, I was a career development coordinator, so I helped students find internships and jobs, but I also helped establish the Executive Master of Public Administration program. Wow. I did that at FIU for about a year before um, I became a full-time um, faculty member. Well, kudos to FIU because they obviously gave you the wherewithal and the latitude to um, expand upon your, you know, your basic duties and able to do this other stuff. Uh, uh, cross-functionality is uh, what comes to mind. Uh, I don't think every, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think every university offers that opportunity. Um, the, you know, because there's a tendency to, you know, to keep you in a certain uh, parameter. Um 
which is, by the way, endemic to public sector. You know, you're, you're in a box, that kind of thing. But they allowed you to work outside of the box. Am I right there? Definitely. Um, I, I know I'm unique in the sense of being hired back by the school that I graduated besides Dr. Patterson. It just, we know, we know it doesn't happen very often. So I'm very thankful that they gave me this opportunity so I wouldn't have to relocate with my family. Um, mm-hmm. My husband also works at FIU. He's been there 18 years now, um, uh, but in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously having a smoking period is, is, is nice. But what I really admire um, about FI is that it has. It's given me a lot of opportunities to learn about different areas and expand, um, give a lot of credit to my mentors, not only Dr. Patterson, but also Dr. Howard Frank, my department chair, um, who helped forge opportunities for me. Um, if we basically never had an undergraduate program director, and we created that position, and I kind of took the, the helm of that. And um, with Dr. Beverly Dalrymple, um, who was a previous uh, director of the Leadership Studies um, Certificate Retirement, I kind of inherited that program and have been running it for a couple of years. But I've really found that if I'm willing to kind of do the work and put in the effort, there's been a lot of opportunities for me to grow. It's a good thing that they gave you the chance uh, to work. And, and and I guess the takeaway from this is that uh, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like the, uh, the academic as well as administrative connections that you established uh, during your sojourn uh, in both finan- first in financial aid and then in, in advising led to other opportunities uh, and, um, and and I want to touch briefly on that. The uh, FIU apparently offer though this is a best practice. The idea of cross platforms and cross functionalities. And uh, does FIU encourage this, uh, or was this idiosyncratic in your case? Um, I think, in my sense, I've I've kind of find since I'm on a non tenure track, um, I don't have a research agenda per se. So I've really taken very heavily, of course, to the teaching, um, but also to service. And I think that's why I've embraced a lot of the administrative work in my department. Um, probably to the relief of a lot of my colleagues, since <laughs> I totally probably don't like the assessment, the accreditation, the scheduling, you know, a lot of the uh, the administrative work, you know, um, if you really come down to it, the pod score, the planning, the organizing, the coordinating, the budgeting. Um, but I, I do find that I have a niche for it. So, yeah. um, and I've been able to carve out a niche for myself by doing that. It sounds like you have a flair for it, actually. Uh, and, uh, the, and and that's very important. And you raise an interesting point that the non-tenure track has given you an opportunity to func- function more on the administrative side. Uh, b- being a tenure track uh, and having, re- having research responsibilities in the publisher parish syndrome, which... Uh, people listening are very very well aware of and that that could be this that could be the subject of another podcast actually uh but the bottom line is that takes away from administrative there's only so many things you can do in a, in a day and that's my next question to you how do you establish a work-life balance which is so important in uh in, in obviously in hr uh and of course, that's something we're always espousing from my neck of the woods, but especially in academe, to establish a work-life balance with all the stuff you've juggled, how, how have you ma- have you managed to do that so effectively? I'm still trying to. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I have good days and I have okay days. Um, right before I jumped on this call, I finished dinner and you know, just yelled to the family, "Spoons on the stove," you know. <laughs> And ran in here. <laughs> they've, um, they've got their own tape recorder running. It, exactly. They you know, serve themselves, uh, but wow. you know, eat without me. Um, but you know, it, I'm really fortunate in the sense that both of my children, I have a 17-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son. They're both doing completely virtual schooling this year. So I am very fortunate with the flexibility that I have to be able to continue virtual schooling them. Um, but you know, again, it's it's a balance. Some days um, I'm able to, you know, devote more time to their projects um, and their Zooms and everything else that goes along with them. Um, and then other days, I guess I'm, I'm caught in my own things. Uh, but I do try and obviously check out for the weekends and enjoy 
the time with my family. Uh, but again, it, it is, it's finding a balance and what works for my, you know, for my family, for my kids, for my husband, for my in-laws that also, my elderly in-laws who also live with me. So we're yeah. also multiple general generational families. So there are, there's a lot of competing needs um, and just finding that balance and carving out some time for myself as well. And, you know, for a little rest and relaxation. So the other take, so the other takeaway is how, once again, how you were able to combine um, your personal and professional life uh, and to make it function in sync in terms of your uh, academic administration career in public service. And that, of course, is, is very, very important. And um, I was, um, you know, I mean, I'm just, Boy, and I thought I had my work cut out for me. Uh, that is, uh, that's 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 quite something. And, and in fact, what I was going to bring up was, and I'm going to I'm I'm going to share this. Actually, I believe you were supposed to get a sabbatical this semester, of sorts, and they loved you so much that uh, they, uh, you know, there were particular projects that they had a pressing need for, and. And, and you, it's kind you of one of those it. things, the best laid plans. Um, I had applied for a professional development league, which is the non-tenure equivalent of sabbatical, um, to take off a semester, which was supposed to be the semester, to work on a project. Um, coincidentally, my project was to help more of the faculty move their classes online <laughs> because of COVID-19. We're all online. So I ended up adapting the project to basically... Um, to have the courses get certified through Quality Matters, which is a peer um, review um, program for online learning, and to just develop some more course uh, development. Um, I ended up having other competing committee responsibilities. So uh -huh. um, <laughs> we haven't even touched that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have a new search that's going to be coming for a dean. So serving on that, uh, we're actually going through our ten years program site review um in next in a couple of weeks like in first week of march um and on top of all of that last summer in the height of everything in the social justice protests after the murder of george floyd um the grassroots movements on the black faculty association arose at fiu um and so i have now serving as the director of teaching for that initiative but because of all these things it didn't really plan for, um, my leave wasn't turning out as I had anticipated. Um, so I had actually requested to defer it. So I'm kind of back on the clock and hoping to take a real leave um, in a couple of years. And um, hopefully, travel permitting, it'll be somewhere far, far away so I can really check out. Well, it's certainly meritorious that you, you know, that you, you know, put your, you know, put your hands back into the soup, so to speak, and uh, realizing uh, that the uh, the reality principle, as uh, Dr. Freud talks about, superseded the pleasure principle here. And uh, so, you know, this is um, this is this is very very significant. Plus, you mentioned the committees, you know. Now, a lot of people listening to this outside of academe or uh, people who, are, who want to get into academe uh, are, are not necessarily cognizant of, the, of, all the, of all the balls that you have to juggle in the air. And, and now, and committees, tell us a little bit about that. What committees are you on? And... Uh, and, and how long do the meetings go? I must, uh, I'll, I'll bet they're, I'll bet they're quite substantive. <laughs> oh, death by committee. So. <laughs> ah, ah, I'll have to remember that. That's good one. Uh, it, it is funny because I, I look at my schedule some days and like, it's just meetings after meetings after meetings. Um, it, it is funny because I actually resigned from quite a few coming up to what I thought was going to be my lead to try and clear my plate. Uh, but I think some of the most substantive ones that I'm, I'm working on right now, and I, I don't regret uh, committing to them because they're very important to me. And like you said, they, they kind of superseded the, the need for a leave because of the urgency um, of them. So one of them was the new diversity, um, equity, and inclusion division. So um, that was mm. launched um, this past fall semester. Um, it came from the work of our university's equity action initiative. 
that resulted in a new division of diversity, equity, inclusion. And one thing that we did is we created um, committees to tie the goals of the diversity, equity, inclusion um, division to our FIU's Next Horizon 2025 strategic plan. So uh-huh. we wanted to make sure with our next strategic plan that we were being very intentional. So that's an example of one committee. Um, is this a strategic plan for reaccreditation or is this a strategic plan that you guys have developed specifically for improvement or both? This is a plan for at the university level to meet um, the university's strategic goals. Um, so for the, for example, the committee that I serve on is recruiting students into success pathways. Uh-huh. Um, they're trying to figure out ways to um, include students into strategic pathways, increasing um you know, not only admissions, retention, graduation, um, and in the sense of tying it to the diversity, equity, and inclusion goals is, you know, making sure that we are a destination for um, Black students who maybe perhaps might see Florida Atlantic University as a more viable uh, option. Um, but again, making them feel that FIU is a, you know, is a place where they belong and where they'll be valued. Um, so we're looking at different programs, just outreach, especially, you know, for graduate student programs with historically black colleges and universities. Very, very interesting. And I might as, and I might as well cut in. Uh, we like this podcast, uh, to, the, if, if any, if we, if we hear of any imminent news, uh, we would like to bring that to your attention. And it just crossed my desk that Cicely Tyson passed away and at the age of 96. And uh, Cicely Tyson, of course, as you know, was one of, in the entertainment, was one of the preeminent black actresses uh, who established a niche for her, a niche for herself in many, many roles. Uh, so I just want to say, you know, rest in peace for that. And I'm sure that we will all be discussing with that further, be discussing that further with Dr. Patterson next month. Um, but I was going to ask you about the diversity and inclusion. Now, when you think of diversity, you usually, of course, of course, we're talking about Title VI and Title VII protected classes. Um, but among those protected classes are the disabled. And uh, that's something that a lot of people don't always realize that the disabled and the handicapped uh, is, is very, very important pursuant to ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, in employment. But um, how does that uh, sedge way uh, into your current committee in education? Is, that, is there a specific niche for inclusion of the disabled in employment uh, as well? How does that go? Um, not on that specific committee, um, but, you know, I definitely would think that with another um, area, okay. you know, there's also a, a committee that I serve on for um, engagement, so finding opportunities for student engagement um, across all abilities, um, interests, you know, in a very kind of nonpartisan, uh-huh. um, different way, but also in, in terms of also access, you know, as we're very much a commuter school we're very cognizant that a lot of our students um have again different responsibilities but they might be connecting from different parts of the country and different parts of the world um, obviously in an online setting it's very important to us to be accessible with transcripts closed caption um, and you know again to make sure that we're being accessible at all very interesting how many committees are you currently on <laughs> Probably more than I want to kind of count. I guess, uh, like I said, I, I have my, my big ones that I'm really kind of dedicated to, obviously, the ones through the provost's office um, mm-hmm. that I've been appointed to, the Black Faculty Association, helping to establish that and um, as a director of teaching. Um, I'm also a union representative, uh, senator for the United Faculty oh. of Florida. Oh, really? What union is this? Uh, the United Faculty of Florida, USFIU. Okay, okay, okay. That's very, very, that's very, very interesting. And that is also a best practice. Um, where I came from in New York City, uh, especially in New York City public sector employment and New York State public sector employment, uh, one kind of, one kind of things, well, how can a supervisor be a member of the union at the same, uh, be a, be a shop steward, so to speak, or an advocate at the same time that they have line uh, and and staff uh, and staff responsibilities, and one would think, well, it's them against us. But in 
point of fact, it's not that at all. It's a, uh, it's a team concept, isn't it? It's a, uh, the, the closest thing I can think of is uh, Bandy's theory of online education, uh, which talks about, as you know, which talks about the team relationship between a student and a, and a professor. And, and, and the similar thing, I think, could be uh, established there. How do you, uh, so how do you, how do you get, how are you able to segue that basic, what, what seems like a basic dichotomy? Here you are uh, in, ma- in academic administration, and yet at the same time, you're, you know, you've got an active role in the union, it sounds like. Uh, how, does that, how does that gel? Well, I guess I'm fortunate in the sense that I have a cushion in the sense that anything like that gets deferred to my boss. So because <laughs> I... <laughs> uh, to Dr. Franks, you know, uh, personnel issues regarding other faculty would would, would go to him. Um, basically, the only person that I supervise is, you know, is, is an office um, uh, assistant, you know, second. Uh, but even, but so, even so, you're you're a conduit. So if I were to move into fa- become a faculty administrator, then yeah, I would I would have to most likely uh, resign yeah. from from the union. Uh, but you know, for now, um, like I said, I. I appreciate the work they're doing and, you know, spreading the word, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to my colleagues about the protections that are available, especially, you know, in light of the memorandum of the MOUs that we negotiated as it related to COVID-19 um, protections for faculty. Well, it certainly serves like a, it certainly sounds like you serve an effective liaison relationship with your, uh, with, with your boss in terms of, uh, in, in terms of working to solve any, uh, issues that come up with, uh, employees and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, I, I, what is your also? This just gives everybody a, a, an idea of the complexity of your job. What are what if any are, is your relationship between the dean of uh, faculty, the dean of students, and so forth? Uh, how does that get? Does that the, the, how does that mix, if anything? It's funny you say that because that's. Um, I spent my day today scheduling meetings um, for our upcoming program site review. Um, we uh-huh. have a site reviewer coming from another university. Uh-huh. Uh, so having to schedule a meeting with all of our faculty, with our program directors for our bachelor's, our master's, our PhD program, scheduling meetings with the deans from um, the, our, our School of International and Public Affairs, scheduling meetings with the Vice President of Academic Planning and Assessments with the Graduate School Dean. Um, I, I've been fortunate in the sense of the different committees and different words, um, different programs that I've participated in um, to meet different people from different parts of the university and develop really good, I would think, good working relationships with a lot of different units. Um, one program that I did a couple of years ago was an educational leadership enhancement program um, where I was able to identify and mentor. Um, and being part of that program really helped me to also just meet a lot of different leaders from different parts of the university that I might not have otherwise crossed paths with. That's very interesting. Um, and, uh, just looking at your just looking at your CV, which is so impressive, um, you are. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get a chance. I got to get a chance. You assisted chair in the program committee chairs with selection and supervision and credentialing. You're supporting the budget and program committees with budget formulations. Oh, I got to ask you about that. How do you deal with? Oh my God! Oh, oh I, 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 I get so my hairs stand up on end when I think of budgets. How did you deal with that? How do you deal with that? What are what are some challenges that you have there? Well, you know, I, I think in the in academia, the especially when it comes to to budget, um, the biggest thing is really summer budgeting because <laughs> most of our faculty are on um, nine months. So during summer, we get a pool of money from the the deans um, that tells us, you know, how many much money we have for summer allocation. Mm-hmm. So it's part of a formula of, of figuring out who's scheduled to teach. Um, it's based on salaries. So some 
faculty are more stressed than others in the summer, so we tend to use junior faculty. Or should we say more strident than others, depending yeah, on the right. particular situation? Okay. You know, and, and then just scheduling adjuncts. Um, so it, it is, it, it's part of a, a kind of a waiting game to kind of see where we are, but then also planning ahead, but knowing things can still change. <laughs> Well, it's very, very interesting uh, to know that uh, in in your in your echelon of uh, academic administration, uh, it sounds like uh, a better. Uh, if you have a knowledge of budgets, that's a plus, uh, and that's something that um, you know. I mean, that, that that's very, very interesting because you you know because you think of the soft. Uh, you think of well, I shouldn't say soft versus hard, but but you think of the interpersonal. Uh, which is so much a part of of, of academe. Uh, the, my associate provost uh, gave me a tip once, and he says, well, you have to be able to speak the language of all the different people that you're dealing with in academe. A lot of them speak very, very di- different languages, and a lot of them are entrepreneurial. Uh, but but this budget thing is 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 is, is something quite out is something uh, also. But let me ask you, um, how do you deal with the uh, with entrepreneurs? And I call them that rather than entrepreneurs, because they are the professors are making a name for themselves within the university, quite rightly so, through their research, through their projects, and so forth, and their and their scholarship. And, 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 and as such, personalities are going to come to the fore. Uh, some of them, which, some of them, it's nice when they, when they dovetail and are, and are synchronous, but when they're cacophonous, that's, uh, how do you deal with those? How do you deal with that? Um, you know, I guess in a few minutes, as far as for adjunct professors. Um, yes. Yes, that's one I Yes, and also as far as the adjunct, as well as uh, as well as uh, the other, the non-tenured and tenured. But uh, so, how do you deal with those? Uh, are they different in terms of how you would deal with adjuncts versus the other? Yeah, I guess when I first came on as the undergraduate program director uh, back in 2014, um, our program was kind of at a crossroads, and where we weren't sure if we were going to continue in undergraduate education. Um, we were just going to focus on our master's and PhD. Um, one thing that we've done is that we have um, started utilizing more of our PhD students, our doctoral students, um, as graduate teaching assistants. Um, and some of our recent graduates, um, you know, like, for example, um, Mr. Cedro Lopez was, you know, uh, a graduate of our program. Who, who, who's he? Who, is who he? came back as, as an adjunct. Um, but I will say that a lot of our Longtime adjuncts um, are practitioners um, who, um, you know, had, you know, either had experience in the program or graduated from the program or, you know, worked in, you know, local government in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our doctoral students, you know, um, again, getting experience before they go out into the job market. Uh, to be honest, even though we get a lot of interest um, for, for adjuncts, the problem that we often have, have is just limited opportunities. Um, um, yes, I, yes, I, um, all of our doctoral students are taught by full-time faculty, um, and then they go to the master's student, and then, again, we have a limited number of adjunct positions. So most of our adjunct positions are at the undergraduate level, but um, it can be difficult at times because uh, – Enrollments fluctuate. Um, yes. And one thing I really hate is if a class does not make, if it doesn't have adequate enrollment, having to cancel a class for an adjunct. Um, it's just something that I just, it's probably my, one of my least favorite parts of the job is, you know, somebody put in the work and then a class just doesn't make enrollment or there needs to be some repositioning, you know, rearranging as far as with faculty. Um, but it is kind of unfortunate reality of, of higher education. It's important to hear that, though, because, um, excuse me, um, uh, prospective applicants applying for positions uh, who either don't hear from uh, the schools or don't understand why they aren't 
being considered. Uh, and plus, of course, you have the COVID nowadays, which is a big, big, big factor uh, in terms of that. But they don't necessarily understand and tend to internalize these kind of feelings and take it personally. From the HR standpoint, of course, uh, you're talking about, you know, low enrollment, uh, and which can, which can interfere. And also, have you encountered issues where uh, money that was originally budgeted towards a particular class or a set of class, a set of classes has to be changed because all of a sudden another topic comes up in the program that, that looks a little sexier, you know, and they, and the university feels they can, that they will have a higher student enrollment if they decide to shift the money into that kind of a program. Have you ever had that kind of a challenge? I'm curious. Well, just because the way um, bureaucracy works, <laughs> um, our, our programs usually don't change that quickly. So if we were to change, for example, a course in our curriculum, um, it's about a year-long process. We'd have to go through several layers of I see. Um, revisions, you know, I see. So first you go through the, you know, school's curriculum review committee, then you go to the Senate's curriculum review committee. Um, so usually when there are changes that do happen in coursework, it's something that's in the works for, for quite some time. Um, mm-hmm. They do occasionally try and offer new courses as electives. Um, but the reality is, is that a lot of students will not take electives if they're not required courses or if it's not originally part of their intended that's a shame because, um, you know, and of course, we're dealing with Platonian ideals and epistemic virtues here. But I would think that, uh, you know, I mean, if you have it, if, if, if something really interests you, you know, and you have a chance to do it, uh, you know, and I would, you know, it's just me, but. I would, you know, as a student, I would suggest, you know, I would suggest, well, take, we'll take the chance because you're only going through this program. I think once. that we've been looking at, um, and I have to give that for me a lot of credit for, is looking at micro credentials and badges, um, which can be kind of combined for course credit that gives a little bit more flexibility for uh-huh. topics um, and more knowledge and skill based abilities. Um, so I, I think you're going to see some more of that coming out um, Interesting. in the sense that it gives a little bit more flexibility to provide more current innovative topics um, on a more on-demand basis. Well, this is very, um, this speaks very positively for FIU in that they are uh, able to essentially deal with the equivalent of um, minor, I wouldn't say major, but I would say minor disruptive innovations in business, which of course, as we know, is, is, is utilized, uh, as a source of competitive advantage, obviously, because, uh, academia is business like any other, and you're dealing with other universities and so forth. We have more flexibility in the, in the public, in the public university structure, since uh, money is coming from the state, uh, you know, in terms, in, in terms of funding this. But nonetheless, it's good to know that, uh, FIU is taking strides to, cope with the real world, so to speak, outside of academia. Would you agree? It is. Um, you know, and we always like to say, I mean, um, FIU is in Miami, which is really a living laboratory um, that we're really connected to our community, and we have to be in every way. Um, when you look at the impact of the university in the terms of, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but the share of for example, public school teachers um, that are FIU graduates. You know, uh, we look throughout the county and I'm proud to see our MPA alum everywhere. (laughs) Wow. That's very, in in education, your MPA is in education. Oh, no, I I was saying, I I remember seeing a figure that I think it was almost like two thirds of Miami-Dade County public school teachers um, are FIU graduates. I see, I see. Um, But just kind of looking at the impact of um, where, our graduates and, uh, you know, the education, but also the employment, the um, resources, you know, and now, of course, through the College of Medicine, with their partnership with Baptist, just, you know, different ways that, you know, the community 
can can benefit in both ways by stronger partnerships. Commendable. Talk about your school, though. Uh, talk about the the public administration. How many? Um, do you have any statistics? And forgive me if I'm throwing a curve at you, but you, but can you give us some idea of the percentage of students that go into public administration uh, positions from your program? Probably based on our exit surveys. Um, upwards of 90% of our graduates are, are in public service. Um, the majority are working in local government. Uh, we have really high presence throughout, you know, the county and the municipalities. Um, then federal, some state, and obviously a lot in nonprofit. Um, but, you know, our department, our graduate program was one of the first at FIU. So um, we have our graduates going back to the, you know, late 70s. Um, uh-huh. So a lot of them, you know, have really obviously gone on to, you know, achieve high levels in, in government and other organizations in academia. Um, well, you've certainly answered that question. It's very impressive uh, to see that over 90% of your graduates uh, make it. Uh, and, of course, that's obviously in traditional times. Everybody has to be aware that because of COVID, and I will tell you one of one of my research interests uh, was the effect because I like to cross disciplines. Although I'm in business, I like to cross it over and into education. And uh, between three hundred and thirty four thousand and five hundred thousand positions were law in education were lost to COVID uh, across the country. Um, New York Times, uh, especially, had done something in October, and the figure was three hundred thirty-four thousand. I understand it's now closer to half a million. This is extremely, extremely unfortunate, and it has a heck of an impact on um, on your school. I would, I would surmise, as well as as well as, well as others. Nonetheless, it sounds to me like you guys have done a great job in terms of uh, coping, in terms of the interests that your students still provide. And you also have to be accessible to your students also in terms of issues that come up. How do you, how do you handle that and put this onto, onto the plate you've already, which is already quite full? How do you deal with, uh, how do you deal with uh, issues coming from students? And again, I, I think it's just letting them know that we're, we're there. Um, you know, we're trying to find solutions with them. We want to work with them. Um, one thing I'm really excited about is, you know, with this upcoming Ask the Best Practices conference that we have on, on February 19th. Yes, um, tell us about that. Uh, so yeah, so this is our 15th annual um, South Florida Chapter Best Practices Conference. Um, this is my fifth year serving as the conference co-chair with Rosalind Alec Apton, uh, who's the chapter's president-elect. Uh, this year's conference theme is Placing Humanity in Public Administration. And I'll be moderating the closing plenary um, with my colleague, Dr. Nikki Fraser from FIU Public Policy Administration, and two of our students, um, MPA student and ICMA at FIU president, Rick Trance-William and PhD candidate um, and ASPA South Florida student representative, Kayla Wachowski. And that closing plenary um, is going to be on social networks, the power of networks and mentors. Um, so really what we're going to do is just kind of highlight how important it is to, to network, to develop um, strong you know, connections um, within the field that you're interested in and how important it is to find strong um, net, you know, sponsors and um, mentors who are really going to help provide um, advice and guidance to, to help open up doors. And uh, if, for anybody who's interested in attending, where can they, uh, where can they go to, um, uh, you know, email address and so forth? Uh, yes, uh, I, so, um, it's on our website, aspasouthfl.org, or if you go straight to ASPA, ASPA 2021, bestpractices.eventbrite.com. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure there's reduced rates for students and so forth. And I think it's $20 flat fee for everybody. That's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. Good for you. And uh, Izzy has just come on. He's smiling uh, from ear to ear uh, uh, to hear the best practices conference uh, being espoused. We didn't forget about that, Izzy. Say something. Oh. We did not. We did not. And, and uh, you know, I think you guys have had a great session. Dr. Caraballo is a stellar 
uh, academic and she's, she's really a fountain of knowledge for anyone listening to this. Uh, she is by far someone I look up to very much. And you guys, if you can make the best practices conference, which she and another one of our members have almost single-handedly put this conference together, not only this year, but so many years before, and this year probably being the most difficult one because uh, we're transitioning through a reality that most of us were not used to. Uh, they've done a phenomenal job, and this is actually going to maybe open doors for future conferences now because we used to think very one-dimensional in terms of in-person conferences, which I think still have good value, but we're reaching folks. We may be reaching folks through this podcast that can join our our best practices conferences beyond our county, beyond our state. Uh, and so that's good. That's really good if we can get more folks to tune in. It's, inc- it's an incredible, incredible effort. And the both of you are to be commended uh, for your enjoying, for your participation uh, in this. And I'm certainly looking forward uh, to it as well. So with that being said, um, uh, Dr. Carabayo, I want to thank you once again. We call her Agatha when nobody's looking, but <laughs> she deserves the title, uh, as I'm sure all of you listening will agree, uh, based on her expertise and also Elan and panache and empathy uh, in terms of dealing, uh, from, from what I've gleaned uh, from this talk, uh, with, the, uh, with the faculty and students at large at FIU. So, Dr., thank you so much for helping us out today and for your attending. And I Thank wanna... you so much. I, I, like I said, it was a pleasure being here. And like I said, I, I've come a long way since I was an ASPA South Florida um, student representative, uh, student member, um, scholarship recipient. And I'm just so glad to still be um, a member of this organization and have the opportunity to keep paying it forward. Well, you're giving back, certainly, uh, and that's just a small part of it. And I want to let everybody know, of course, these broadcasts are audio only, but uh, we're doing this taping audio and video, and the doctor is wearing an ASPA T-shirt as we as we speak, a nice sky blue color, and uh, embarrassing both my – and yes, and, and Izzy is showing his badge. And all I could do is open my mouth and talk to everybody and be how great uh, you all are. So that's my, con- my my small contribution to the effort. But but seriously, thank you so much again, not just to uh, Dr. Caraballo and Izzy, uh, but all of you for listening in and to continue to listen uh, to our series of podcasts. Next month, as we stated, we're going to have uh, – a uh, we're going to have a, a podcast about it, the Black History Month, and Dr. Valerie Patterson, hopefully, who you listened to briefly today, will be on to discuss various aspects of uh, her research interests and how uh, FIU is contributing to that particular endeavor. So goodbye to everybody. Uh, Izzy, say goodbye. Goodbye to all out there, and we look forward to seeing you at our third podcast in february uh or i hope i guess what i should be saying is i look forward to having you all listen to our podcast in february thank you and dr caraballo excuse me did you have anything further you wanted to add that we didn't speak about before we sign off no just tell everyone take care and stay safe absolutely and i echo the same thing thank you once again from south florida and the asper podcast and we hope to see you next month